You're about to listen to an episode of What Are You Making Me Watch? in which we are discussing episode eight of Band of Brothers, The Last Patrol. I don't know why you'd be about to listen to this if you hadn't already watched it, but just to say, if that is the case, woe there. Hello, I'm Paul Kirkley. And I'm Hannah Dunleavy. You're listening to What Are You Making Me Watch? So, here we are, The Last Patrol, an easy company in Hagenau, sitting over the river from German troops, getting their first opportunity to believe that they might actually make it home in one piece. Lipton has pneumonia, although that doesn't stop everyone from smoking over him all the time. (laughs) And Webster is back from the hospital, enabling him to not only act as a translator between Easy Company and the Germans, but between new arrival Lieutenant Jones and his battle-hardened team. And the Winter Shoe Packs have arrived. Hooray! What a relief! Finally! Still no word on the socks. Still no word on the socks. So much to talk about here, but I've mentioned Lieutenant Jones, so maybe let's start there. Quite a lot of grumbling when this was first released. Clear accusations of nepotism that the not especially experienced actor Colin Hanks was cast as Lieutenant Jones. However, I think it's a stroke of casting genius. Who else could turn up and appear that inexperienced and that that gifted to have arrived in that place to play such a role as the son of the producer. It seems like he is Lieutenant Jones almost. He's turned up separate from all these guys. They've been all on this for ages and they're like, look at him sweeping in just because he's dad's someone important. Exactly. And because he's playing a, an officer straight out of West Point, as they say, yeah. who's uh, who's been drafted in uh, kind of over their heads. Then, as you say, yeah, it's perfect, isn't it? Yeah. That's how it works. Jones graduated with Ike's son. Yes. Um, you know, even Ike was never as powerful as Tom Hanks. <laughs> no. So, um, yeah. So, yes, Colin Hanks, son of renowned podcaster Tom, just breezing in there and uh, doing a pretty good job, I would say. Yeah, I thought he was good. Yeah. I think he's good. Yeah. In it. yeah. It's a tough role because he has to kind of be inscrutable because he he's trying not to let them know that he's scared, which is the sort of the valuable role that Webster plays because Webster is experienced but has been off the line for ages. So yeah. he is a bit, as Scott Grimes calls him, that's Donald Malarkey, calls him, he is a bit nervous in the service. And, um, <laughs> yeah. 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 No, he does, he does a very good job. By the way, don't you think it says a lot about how many American cop shows we watched as kids that Lieutenant still sounds more natural yeah. than left even to us Brits. Yeah. yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, good point. So Colin Hanks, he did, a, I remember him doing a TV show about uh, Roswell aliens and this. Has he done much else, Colin? He was in Mad Men for a while. He played, oh, okay. he played Peggy's Priest. That would have been a cooler reference than the thing about the Roswell aliens, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I remember let's, him let's... being in some indie drama as well about some guy who just sits on the sofa and smokes parts of me. Um, <laughs> and... oh, well, he could be a podcaster like his dad, then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Something to aim for. Definitely, I would say, based on the past couple of years, he's definitely Tom Hanks' best son. Yeah. There's another Hanks, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, he's the one that, that had his top off when he was talking about his dad having COVID. Can yeah. <laughs> yes. He's called something daft as well. I don't know what. Yeah. 
Definitely not Hank, Colin. Hank Hanks. <laughs> that would be excellent. <laughs> Talking of West Point, I've been to West Point. Have you? Fun fact, yes, I have. You didn't graduate from West Point, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I just went there on a day trip and went round on, on a coach. Went round on a coach, yeah. No, yeah. no, I went there in a car, but then I had to get on a coach. Right. I was in that neck of the woods. It's upstate New York, and um, right. And I thought I might just go there, and it's quite pretty. In fact, it's very pretty around West Point. Hmm. Yeah. What is there to see? Some sort of outbuildings. <laughs> It's quite old, so as as yeah. buildings go in America, it's quite an old. So it's like oh. a university campus style thing, which right. is always quite you know yeah. nice to have a look at. You get to watch young people running around, and there's a there's a big church. Uh, but no, one of the main reasons I wanted to go is you go on a tour, uh, you go on a guided tour with someone who went there. Oh wow! I got a guided tour off a, a Vietnam war vet, so I just asked, asked him loads wow. of questions about Whoa. Vietnam. So yeah, you know me and history. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. A tour from a Vietnam vet. Yeah. You don't get that in the National Trust, do you? You don't, no. Well gel, as they used to say in the noughties. <laughs> Bit on my holidays, and I saw two fantastic names for hairdressers while, <laughs> oh, while I was yeah. in Sussex, one of which yeah. was Well Gel. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was terrific. And the other one was called The Lunatic Fringe. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I do, yeah, I love a crazy hair, hairdresser. There's one near, near us in Leeds when I was growing up called Curl Up and Die, which I thought <laughs> not really sending the most positive message, was no. it? So Webster has returned. They don't have the greatest reaction to his return because he's gone for a long way and as if to prove that point, also returned from the hospital this episode, Harry Wells, who has only been gone since the, the Bastogne episode, and Frank yes. Picanti, who's only been gone since last week, the last episode. And he's been gone since Market Gardener. And I think it works really well to remind you how long ago that feels. So Webster's been gone for three episodes, but it feels like he's been gone for much, like much longer. Yeah. And they're really resentful, aren't they, of that, which is interesting. Even though even though he's a veteran of D-Day, he's a veteran of Market Garden, which were, let's face it, no picnic, no. were they? Uh, but because he missed Bastogne, they, they see him as a bit of bit of a malingerer. Especially, you know, they literally resent him for not busting out of the hospital and fighting with a broken leg or whatever, because that's what people like Joe Toy did, obviously, yeah. and paid the price. Yeah, this is where the, I said before, this is where the sort of culture clash comes, because Webster isn't really, he is one of them, but he's different from them, because yeah. he is, he's been to Harvard, or he's at Harvard, yeah. and leaves Harvard to come and serve. And by all sort of normal rules he would have become an officer but he hasn't yeah. he's decided to go and serve on the front line so he's not the same as them he is he's very middle class essentially just arrived very educated middle class young man arrived along a lot of you know gas fitters farmers that that yeah. kind of bus drivers that kind of thing he is different and i think it's it's an interesting plot thread but you think you think they would respect him kind of mocking in rather than taking a commission wouldn't you but he's, he seems to I don't know would you me as I was thinking about this me as an unreconstructed class warrior I don't know whether I would I'd be a bit like oh look at him coming here roughing it like, like he's in his pulp song <laughs> roughing it with us yeah but better than better than coming in and ordering you around just based on his uh, on his yeah. parents isn't it yeah so this I'm gonna say is was my favorite episode of Band of Brothers so far um, I'm not surprised I... because it comes with all of the things that you've been asking for. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah, because it sets up this immediate dynamic of 
we all know that it's kind of screenwriting 101 that drama is based on conflict right and i think sometimes with band of brothers maybe the there's a problem in that the conflict is with our guys and a bunch of faceless e- enemy combatants and the clues in the title really isn't it they're literally a band of brothers they're a tight group they can forge an adversity but here we get very clearly defined lines of conflict within that group and there's quite a strong narrative arc with the uh, the characters are kind of positioned almost like uh, chess pieces aren't they where, where they're taking very deliberate positions against each other at certain points and i think that works really well from uh, dramatically and i don't know how much of this is true because it feels quite authored in the way it's set up for example when webster maneuvers lieutenant jones into a combat situation to get malarkey off the job it's kind of basically him playing god with other people's lives isn't it and that obviously comes back that has consequences so i mean i assume this all happened as far as i'm aware it 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 happened this is how it happened as as far as i'm aware it has a voiceover so tick because you like a bit of explanation going on in the background (laughs) it sort of focuses on one character sort of yes tick that's another thing people quite often have their helmets off in this, so you can see full faces. So tick because it's inside, so they haven't got their helmets on. Well, they got a house. They've got a house. Yeah, it's the, it's the big band of brother house. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, yeah, with Webster in the diary room. Yeah, so I I did like all that. This I did think it was a fascinating dynamic and the way that, uh, as I say, he kind of maneuvers the, into the position who's going to go on the patrol. And, and he's basically given himself, himself the power of life and death in a way, isn't he? And and he says a small moment of justice because he's got malarkey off the line. But yeah. obviously there's consequences to that. What do you mean and by those the, consequences? Well, there's, by by removing malarkey from the from the patrol, he's obviously putting Jones into it. But yeah. also it results in Dexter Fletcher. Dexter Fletcher <laughs> being. Best Paddington hard stare that anybody's ever done. Oh, yeah. It's actually my favourite bit of Band of Brothers is that look he gives Webster and Webster goes, what, me? And he just keeps doing yeah. it. He just keeps staring at him giving, him, giving him evils. Yeah. So he puts Webster into the patrol as, as the entirely necessary second translator, which basically that kind of uh, putting a colleague in the line of fire as an act of revenge, isn't it? So the ba- the band of brothers definitely got cracks in it this week, hasn't it? Yeah, um, he also gets leap got out of the patrol by saying that yes. it's unnecessary. Yeah. But it's funny how Jones keeps saying, "Can I go? Can I go? Can I? Can I? Can I go?" And the answer is persistently no, and until it's yes. Whereas yeah. the the guy in the mail room. Um, who is a British actor who I've seen in loads of stuff, but I just can't remember his name. He asks to go, and they say yes. And he, and he is immediately, Winter says yes. And he is the biggest liability of all of them. <laughs> yeah. Like, absolutely massive liability. What does he got on him? He just gets straight in there, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, the mission itself is to cross a river and capture some German hostages. And uh, ask them uh, what I, their favourite colour is. <laughs> yes. I have not been so stressed about someone crossing a river since that gingerbread man met that fox. It's like, (laughs) and and the way that they have to pull themselves across on ropes, it's like a really, really stressful sort of game of it. It's a knockout, isn't it? Yeah. uh, Enemy fight. It's a bit like Squid Game. That that will date this podcast, won't it? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So after an episode that's been quite talky, quite about the kind of human 
drama and interactions, then then the actual mission itself is, well, that's just pretty stressful, isn't it? Pretty traumatic. Again, in the ticks for Kirkley, it's a very clearly defined mission. Yeah. Explain it on several occasions. This is what you have to do. <laughs> And then it gets it gets broken down even further. It gets to be you're coming into the house, you're staying here, yeah. you're on the bank. I mean, it goes wrong immediately when they fall, when <laughs> some people fall in the water, and that water must have been freezing because we're still yeah. only in about January. Oh god, yeah. Now, what I liked is the way that, that yeah, that you know, Damien Lewis turns to the camera and says, "Now, Paul, what's going to happen?" Is <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And this guy with the hat. This one's Dexter Fletcher. Also, going back to something we've talked about in previous episodes, the mission, it's very clear the mission doesn't really achieve very much. But top brass want to make them go again and do another one anyway. And you get the sense here that uh, we talked about the show's attitude to war and how reverential it is to the Allied campaign, how reverential it was going to be or not going to be. We talked about that in the first episode. And here they're leaning quite heavily into the futility angle aren't they suggesting that generals are almost just doing these little missions for bragging rights yeah they're putting men's lives on the line to win points in a game rather than for any strategic advantage what nixon actively says that he's been bragging it up and and he wants more yeah another interesting thing that happens in this episode and it's quite incredible when you think about it in isolation from from the rest of the series as an event is that Winters says, we're not going to do it. Yeah. And not only does he disobey orders, he encourages 15 men to disobey orders. Mm. Nixon writes out something that's a total lie. Yeah. He says, oh, I'm actually going to enjoy writing this one. <laughs> yeah. Because he writes up an event that's a total lie. And if you remember going back to the first episode, there are two instances with court-martials in the first episode. Winters is court-martialed for basically nothing. Yeah. Because Ross is a prick. <laughs> Everyone gets in massive trouble and Stephen Graham gets demoted for saying they don't have any confidence in their leaders Mm. in the first episode. Loads of them. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Way worse things have actually happened in combat and nothing's happened. Last week, Lipton went and said, I have no confidence and there were no repercussions for him. Yeah. Whereas there have been repercussions in the first one, and now no repercussions at all. In fact, Dick Witness gets promoted <laughs> yeah, after this. Promotes a major, doesn't he? Yeah. But I think that's really interesting because you know that for a man like Winters to defy his commanding officer, that must have been a huge decision for him. Yeah, absolutely huge. Yeah. But it's he's, he's reached. You know, he he's followed a lot of orders with a heavy heart in the past, doesn't he? And and yeah. it, you've, it's kind of finally found his red line here. He's like, this is just stupid. I think as well, because of when it's happening, I think is significant, isn't it? Because it's February 1945. The end is in sight. And uh, in the vet- interviews with the, with the veterans at the start, they kind of start to say they had a gut feeling that they might get through this. You know, yeah. So we needed to walk carefully, as they put it. And, and I think, you know, the, I think there's a sense of that with Winters. He's, thinking, look, we've got this far. Why are we sacrificing people on these on these pointless missions? Because Jackson actually dies as a result of his own mistake. He's not killed by the Germans. Yeah, yeah. He's, but even so, 
They are. They're tired. They're going to be making mistakes. Yeah. If they'd sent them again, somebody else might have died from their own mistake. Yeah. It's, he died for nothing, essentially, and it's quite sad. And it's a horribly, I think it's probably the most horribly projected death we've seen so I far. I think it is, yeah. And um, the fact that half his face is burned off and it's just, it, yeah, it, and he's just, it's really, really horrible death. I, I think as soon as those veterans say you know we had a gut feeling we might make it you start to worry don't you it's like the it's the kind of veteran cop on the last shift isn't it, it it's <laughs> it's the loss has never been injured conversation. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah yeah because even if they don't die someone's gonna die yeah. you know someone's someone's gonna die yeah yeah and by the end they're saying a corner has been turned and you're kind of hoping it is but then you know next stop germany so who knows yeah, well, we'll get to that in a bit, I think. On the subject of death, Bill Keane's death is, is I mean, as Webster says in the voiceover, in war, soldiers sometimes die in the fever pitch of a firefight or by artillery when they're huddled in a foxhole. Bill Keane was killed because he was carrying a sack of potatoes from one building into another. So I thought that was quite a powerful moment as well, the kind of banal daily reality of death behind enemy lines, just carrying a sack of spuds. Yeah. Fassbender took it hard. I don't know if you noticed it. That again? Oh, you did because he had his helmet off. You spotted it was Fassbender. Oh, also not in a not. He's not famous himself particularly, but I wonder if you'd noticed now he's got his helmet off. We see a bit more of the face of Sergeant Grant, and we will be seeing more of him. And he is played by Nolan Hemmings, who is the son of David Hemmings. Oh, really? And looks exactly the same. <laughs> looks really uncannily the same, almost identical. Oh, yeah. Well, he should be fighting in one of those Charge of the Light Brigade jackets, then I'd recognise him. <laughs> yeah. Man. Two famous sons in this episode. It's interesting the conversation about nepotism, isn't it? Because while undoubtedly, absolutely 100% nepotism exists and people get pushed into jobs that they're not qualified for because of who their dad is, in the same way, you know, is Rafe Spall in the position he's in because he's the son of Timothy Spall? Possibly yes. Is Rafe Spall one of the best actors that we've got in this country? Also yes. Yes. So it is quite complicated. Well, we've got a friend, haven't we, who, I'm not going to mention her because I don't want to embarrass her, but we've got a friend who who is a journalist, who is the daughter of a very famous journalist. Yeah. And... She would argue that that actually hasn't helped her out at all. Well, in fact, uh, in some well, ways, she has always, you know, always resisted mentioning him, hasn't she? Exactly that. In yeah. some ways, you you would never know it. Yeah. But is she also one of the best journalists I know? Also, yes. <laughs> also, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, name drop Clang. I was talking to Timothy Spall a couple of weeks ago, and I said about you know what what advice have you ever given Rafe? And he basically said, "Have you?" He said pretty much that. Have you seen him act? You know, do it like, yeah. like he needs my advice. You know, so, um, yeah, absolutely. So I think the thing that people often say, which I think is a lot of truth to it, is that the name can get you through the door, but it once you're through, you have to then deliver, don't you? Otherwise, you'll be back out yeah. the door. So it's still massively galling for those of us who don't have the opportunity to get through the door. But you would hope that it is a self filtering process that you know the ones who get through the door and then just aren't up to it jason connery bless him uh, <laughs> big fan of robin of Sherwood, as you know michael prade was brilliant they cast sean connery's son and you know he was 
the most wooden thing in Sherwood Forest is quite <laughs> it's quite some game. So that's why he never had a career. But yeah, Rafe Spore would be the op- opposite to that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, actually, here you go another name drop. Clang. Clang. I talked to Victoria Cora Mitchell about this, and she says that you know when people like know who her dad is because obviously they do. She said they assume that your dad has rung up and said, can you give my daughter <laughs> Victoria work? And she's like, that's not how it works. Obviously, it is the name that opened the door. But she says, actually, the benefit of having a parent who is, is successful in the career that you want to go into is that it shows you that it's possible. Yeah. Is that when you go to them and say, hey, dad, I'd like to be a TV presenter or a, you know, a journalist or an actor or whatever... They say, all right, then. Yeah, okay. Because they know, because she used David Mitchell, obviously her husband, as a comparison, because she was like, you know, they're just just ordinary people (laughs) doing ordinary jobs. So it seemed like so much of a bigger deal for him to say, this is what I want to do for a living. Yeah. Can we talk about how much Cobb looks like Harry Kane? (laughs) Let's talk about Cobb, yeah. Yeah. Great, because he is the other long-standing sort of, antagonist within this mm, yeah nobody is ever going to say it's their favorite character and he, he looks like harry kane crossed with kirk out of coronation street you don't know what that means do you no too... i don't know who harry kane is <laughs> too busy watching too busy watching prestige hbo miniseries to know uh, yeah. who kirk out of um, coronation street is but also webster by the way a uh, young billy zane would you say yeah. It's the eyes, isn't it? Yeah. He's very pretty, isn't he? Very pretty young man, Webster. Well, it helps as well because he comes back and he just looks so clean. <laughs> he does shiny. look like he's washed his hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he's shaved. Even, even, even Damien Lewis is, is a little bit stubbly in yeah. this episode. Yeah. They really are at the end of their, yeah. their tether. I mean, like I've said before, I absolutely love Scott Grimes in this malarkey. He just looks filthy. They all look like physically dirty in yeah. this in a way that they haven't before. They all look like they stink. Yeah. But yes, Cobb, what a prick. <laughs> yeah, what a bell end. What's his game? Is he just is he just a bit of a twat or is he just can can we forgive I don't know, some people are a bit of a twat. Are you I don't know if you've noticed this, Cobb actually court martialed for his behaviour in this in real life in this episode. And you saw him being taken off by military police at the end of it. That is the end of Cobb. Okay. I don't know whether it comes from the fact that he didn't get to jump at D-Day because he was injured in the plane. But he was very much the bully of the replacements when they first arrived earlier in this series. He is the cynic. He is... I don't know. I kind of... I do think he seems to be a prick, but at the same point, I I don't want to judge because I don't know how I would be by this point. Pretty stressful situation. In in this situation, I might turn into an absolute twat. And it's, uh, it's a nice example of nominative determinism because he's always sulking and where i come from that's called having a cob on so yes um, it works so they're about to go into germany as we are told Mm. by the by the end of this have you any predictions on what that might hold more germans to fight (laughs) (laughs) i don't know where easy company ended up i mean i'd I'd like to say that i'm following their journey in real, you know, going into it. In real time, yeah, 70 years later. Like yeah. a viewer, like a, a viewer at the time, rather than just being too lazy to look it up. They could end up in Hitler's bunker in Berlin, for I know, or they could end up in a sausage factory in Munich. I have no idea. I imagine 
what what worries me is the fact that they keep talking about a, t- a corner being turned and that they could see the end and starting to think they might make it. And I'm thinking, well, Germany, that's you know that's pretty close to the centre of the action. So yeah, so bad things might happen. That's what worries me. Mm. Your face is not reassuring me either. Yeah, I've got my Colin Hanks inscrutable face on. <laughs> yeah. You've been listening to What Are You Making Me Watch, which is written, produced and edited by Hannah Dunleavy and Paul Kirkley. Our theme tune, Silver and Gold, is from Audio Hub. You can follow us on Twitter at Make Me Watch Pod, or you can follow Paul where he is at PR Kirkley. The rest of the time he can be found on the pages of Waitrose Weekend, Classic Pop and Doctor Who magazine, among many other things. Among several other things. He's also written two books about Doctor Who. What are they called, mate? They're called um, Space Helmet for a Cow 1 and Space Helmet for a Cow 2. <laughs> two, two space, two cow. <laughs> yeah, two helmets. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find Hannah on Twitter at That Dunleavy or in her day job talking about women's rights and a lot more besides at the Standard Issue podcast. Thanks for listening.